Jamie Stein, Chief Client Officer at ICUC.social. Born and raised in Vancouver, lived here in glorious Toronto for 14 years. Now I'm back with my wife and kids to enjoy some of the summer. Welcome back to Toronto. It's it's great to be back. (laughs) It's great to be back. Lots of construction. There there is. There is. The problems of a big city. You know what, though? I I won't be popular, I don't think, if I say this, but I took the King Street car to get here. And uh, I love that there's no traffic on King Street. I got here in no time. No, it's, it's, it's popular. The less time it takes to travel the better and the more you use public transit the better yeah absolutely yeah there was a, a tweet again this this doesn't matter to you but maybe a week ago and i think it was the toronto board of trade said you know we need to build more lanes of the 401 above like like an ele- elevated mm. lanes um and again it's like you know if you build it they will come so yes if you build more lanes it will get filled up and there'll be traffic on those mm-hmm. as well you know, so why not focus on, you know, mass, Yeah. you know, public transit? Yeah, I'm with you. Vancouver just announced that they're extending uh, their subway line to, through part of uh, the west side of the city. We got, uh, you know, some great bike lanes and stuff, too. And I find I'm taking all alter- You know what I did? I just bought one of those electric scooters that they have through, like, Lime Bike. So for my 40th birthday yeah. a couple of weeks ago, I got a present for myself. I used it in San Diego. Because the, the vision of these electric Oh, so it's scooters. like a bike that you just like you. So it's a scooter, but it's a scooter. To? Yeah, it's got okay. a scooter with a motor on, like the ones kids have, like the push scooter where they push oh, with one their of those. foot. So yeah, oh, yeah it's oh, amazing. Okay, okay. So so they have them now in like San Diego I was and in California. You took it with you somewhere? No, well, it's thirty five pounds. I can carry it into a meeting. So you can ride them in bike lanes out in California, and it's to close that last gap between the subway system yes. and the office. So like they they call it to close that last kilometer, and yeah. it would be amazing in you know a place with bike lanes and stuff and. So I've got it, and I can't wait to use it to get around Vancouver and you know nice. beat the traffic. Did you bring it here? No, it's on back order, so I'm waiting oh, for it. Okay, but wait. Uh, wait, you rode one of those in San Diego. Yeah, yeah, but it can go 40 kilometers an hour, and it can last on one charge. It can go, I don't know, I think 40, 50 miles. So like, You're kidding I, me. oh yeah, you could go, you can go a whole day on it. And yeah. uh, you know, I was on it, and you can wear a suit. You're not sweating, and you know, you yeah. go to business meetings and, like today. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, like today. Oh, I'm dying today. Uh, you got a West Coast boy in Toronto right now. I'm overheating. <laughs> Please do not play. Do not pray for rain. <laughs> no. Whatever you do. Um, I don't know if you know this, Jamie. Um, like I've been doing this podcast for three years. Before this, uh, you you probably know I was doing um, that thing out of your old office at ING slash Tangerine. Yep. Um, and I tried to get you in there. And I couldn't get you in there. Um, but I've been wanting to talk to you ever since you were planning that mount kilimanjaro climb yes that that fundraiser um so i want to start there actually Mm -hmm. um you were doing it as a fundraiser yeah um you're not a mountain climber or or anything like that but tell me like how did that how did that begin so this story so we climbed in 2013 i believe Mm -hmm. so five years ago but this this goes way back to 2006 yeah so my dad passed away from leukemia in 2006. He'd been battling um, myelofibrosis, which is another blood disease, for um, most of my childhood, and then passed away in 2006. And, you know, at the time, I was doing radio for the Toronto Argonauts, and I phoned up Canadian Blood Services because my dad was hoping to get a bone marrow transplant, which could potentially help him. Yeah. Uh, In the end, it, it wouldn't have worked, but that awoke me to... The fact that here in Canada, we're blessed with a multicultural society, mm-hmm. but cursed with the fact that um, the way bone marrow is matched, our multiculturalism is also 
a problem for us in finding the right matches for the people that live in Canada. How's that? So the, it's not like a blood type where you have, you know, four types with positive negatives and stuff. It, the, the markers, you know, can be anywhere from six to ten markers. And I'm not a scientist, sure, so sure, someone's sure. probably going, well, it's not exactly right. But yeah. let's just assume you need a bunch of matches. But the more you have people coming to Canada from different parts of the world and then they marry people from yeah. other cultures or heritages, mm -hmm. you start to create new strains. Okay. So it becomes more and more difficult to match. And oh. so in Canada, um, you know, we have the the Western European background. Sure. We have a First Nations background. We yeah. have a strong Asian population. We have mm -hmm. a strong South Asian population. Mm -hmm. We have a strong black population. Mm -hmm. And the list could go on. In Toronto, you know, we could we could be talking, do a whole podcast listing everyone. Yeah. But they looked across the country at our cultural mosaic, and, and, and it became a problem. And oftentimes we had to go outside of Canada to find matches, or we couldn't find matches at all. Oh, wow. So at the time, they had the unrelated bone marrow donor registry. And it was about 200, 250,000 people on it. Mm -hmm. Now, the thing with the bone marrow donor registry is um, you volunteer. You put your name forward. You know, but most people don't expect to ever get called. So when they do get called, what happens is, is they might back out. The match might actually end up not necessarily being the right match. So there's a lot of complications. So let's fast forward. I did a lot of work with Canadian Blood Services. Fast mm -hmm. forward to, you know, 2012-ish. And now they're trying to do the medical medicine advanced. And now they're trying to do a public umbilical cord blood bank. Mm -hmm. So for people that don't know, when the baby's born, there's the umbilical cord. And that is full of rich cells, stem cells. Um, that can be used to cure all sorts of diseases, um, similar to how bone marrow could do it. But in Canada, it was just medical waste. So they were throwing this life-saving mm -hmm. you know, stem cells out because that was they didn't have a system to collect it. They didn't have a system to do anything with it. And at the time, we were one of two G20 nations without a public umbilical cord blood bank. One of only two? One of only two. G20. Wow. G20. Wow. You know, and, and as, as a Canadian, like, you know, we grow up, we have this, you know, this great healthcare system we're mm -hmm. taking care of. Um, and you just assume, like, when your number's called and you get sick, like, the system will take care of you. Yeah. You know, and if you talk to the doctors, you know, you go over to sick kids and talk to them, they'll say, look, we can, we can save people, but what we're missing is the ingredient. We're missing the stem cells. Mm. So the Canadian Blood Services set up a program with the federal government to build this cord blood bank. So they have um, one in Ottawa and one in Edmonton, one for each coast, mm -hmm. where they store in, um, uh, you know, like uh, liquid nitrogen, this, mm -hmm. this cord blood. But they had to collect it and they had to raise $12 million to get this into motion. So the yeah. plan was in place. They needed $12 million. Yeah. So that's how we get to Mount Kilimanjaro. Okay. And that was a fundraiser, a fundraising climb. Correct. Yeah. So we started by soliciting large private donations, mm -hmm. and it's a difficult concept to sell because, you know, if you're a hospital, someone's name can go up on a wing. If you're a school, mm -hmm. you get a school named after you. But a cord blood bank is like, firstly, no one knew what it was because it was so futuristic. And yeah. secondly, it's it's hard to put your mind around it. So if someone gives birth in a hospital in Edmonton and they take the umbilical cord, put it in liquid nitrogen, transfer it to a facility and you know, okay, it all happens quietly behind the scenes. And we just, we take health for granted, I think, in mm, Canada. Yeah. So we needed to do a mass awareness campaign. And the CEO of Canadian Blood Services, Dr. Graham Shear, he was about to turn 50. And him and the vice president of communications there, Jean-Paul Bedard, 
uh, made a decision that, uh, you know, they wanted to climb Kilimanjaro and people started talking and they said, what if we do fundraising? And we looked into it. And so it, it became this big thing where each person had to raise $25,000 mm-hmm. uh, to go and, or sorry, $10,000, my mistake, $10,000 okay. to go each and yeah. then, you know, pay your own way there. Sure. So I arranged a sponsorship through Tangerine Bank, you yeah. know, and they, they sponsored the climb. And so I got a spot on the climb. Yeah. I also went out to raise money. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm very proud. I, I was third out of everyone. I raised $28,000 awesome. on my own. Yeah. Thank you. Well, I think you donated, so I appreciate that. You're welcome. And, um, and that was all done through social media. It was all done telling a story every week about the climb, about cord blood, about my dad. And it just kept that momentum going. And I can't remember who suggested it to me. It might have been our friend Heidi who mm-hmm. said, you know, you have to train every week. I was hiking, you know, three hours in Toronto every week for seven months. Yeah. And she said, well, you're on these hikes. Like, why don't you put up a Google spreadsheet and invite people to come hike with you? I thought that was a brilliant idea. It's brilliant. Not my idea. Yeah. I'm pretty sure it was Heidi. If not, <laughs> whoever did give me the idea, they get their credit. I won't take credit for anything that smart. Yeah. So I put it up and said to people, you know, if you want to come walk for three hours, pick my brain about jobs, networking, people, whatever, bring friends, bring family, whatever yeah. you want to do. And you know, for 20-something weeks, they picked the spot. I'd hike everywhere. I got to know Ontario. It was amazing. And, you know, that's how I trained, along with uh, a trainer not far from here, uh, a guy named Marshall over on uh, uh, Queen and Sherborne. And mm-hmm. uh, him and I would lift weights twice a week, and then I would do this hike, and I stopped drinking. I ate better, and a lot of preparation. Nice, nice. Were there – now, were these people – generally that you knew that 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 came out with you or that you went to meet or were there any strangers that you ended up talking to yeah some strangers in fact one woman who i had um breakfast with last week here in toronto she she came on the hike met her name's christina met her yeah for the first time on the hike um our friend Lori. yeah uh, Lori dylan shulk yeah um we knew of each other okay and someone suggested that she go on a hike with me and now you know we become good friends yeah and so you know for me it was a way to reacquaint with older friends yeah. And then it was also a way to meet new people. Meet, meet, yeah. And then those people then felt part of the journey. And then they told other people, you know, you should donate to this cause. You should go on a hike. Mm-hmm. You know, you should train with Jamie. And that that built a lot of positive momentum. Mm-hmm. And through that, we now have the public cord bank. The we do. So bank. it's been it's been in um, operation for a couple of years. We okay. raised we raised the money. Yeah. You know, over twelve million dollars. The the Kilimanjaro climb raised three hundred and fifty or three hundred sixty thousand dollars at the okay. end of the day. Nice. So amazing for both awareness and dollars raised. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's in effect, I believe about a year ago or seven, eight months ago, the first, you know, person was saved from, oh, wow. you know, the from a cord from the cord blood bank. So, yeah, you know, if you if you they collect in certain hospitals, so two in Ottawa. Um, oh, act- so it's not it's not every hospital one. because, like I said, they want to cover the cultural mosaic of Canada. So they didn't uh. actually choose a Toronto hospital. They chose one in Brampton. Okay. Because they want to collect from the South Asian community. Okay. They've chose Vancouver for the mm. Asian community. Mm. And then they've chosen Edmonton with a high Aboriginal population. Okay. And then Ottawa has two hospitals as well. Okay. So they've strategically chosen where in the country so that they can make up for, you know, the deficit. What in they China. don't have. Yeah. Okay. That's very, very interesting. Yeah. Um, tell me about, tell me about the climb. I, I know it. I mean, that you took like tons of technology with you. Um, and, and you, you back when blogging was so huge and popular, you blogged about your travels. Obviously, you tweeted about it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, tell me about that. So even personally, it was uh, it was an emotional climb for sure. I, mm-hmm. I always tell people, 
you know, I always knew I was physically strong, but I thought I was mentally strong until mm. um, you get on a mountain and your oxygen saturation levels are at 73%, which to put it in context, you or I breathing air in Toronto right now are at 99 or 100. Mm-hmm. Uh, if we went below about 95, you know, they, they would be having us in the ER wondering what's wrong with us. Wow. So I was down at 73 mm-hmm. and I wrote a blog post about it. I called it the hardest day of my life. It was... Um, it was hot. You're at high altitude. We were climbing around 13,000 feet, I think, that day above sea level. So we were high up there. Mm-hmm. And I made the mistake, I'll never do it again if I do a mountain, um, of going in a t-shirt. And I got sunburned on my arms and that heat started to drain me. So okay. I would wear a long sleeve shirt, even if it's hot. Um, and I was hiking too fast. They tell you in Swahili, they say pole pole, which pole, means pole, slow, slow down. down. Yeah, you know, slow down, yeah. slow down. And you hear it. But you don't realize how slow is slow, right? Because we're all speed walking around Toronto here. We're in a rush, <laughs> jaywalking, running in front of buses. We don't care, right? So I'm up there on the mountain darting here and there. And uh, I realized, you know, I was wearing myself out. You yeah. know, and part of it was I was in charge of all the technology. I had satellite gear that was, you know, pinging our location. I had satellite gear that was telling us, you know, where to go. And, um, you know, I had a sat phone where I was sending tweets back on it and stuff like that. So, so I had that on my mind. I wasn't thinking poly poly. The group was rushing every day to camp. I don't know why we were rushing to get to camp. Like you, camp's boring. You get to camp and then you don't do anything. You just set you set up and stay there. <laughs> yeah, you just sit around for seven hours on a mountain before before bedtime, <laughs> bored out of your mind. So I was like, why are we rushing? Like let's enjoy the journey, not the yeah. you know not the destination. Yeah. And so, you know, anyway, we were hiking. We got through a section, and I was taking big lunging steps, and my legs started to get tired. You burn oxygen, not mm. the short. Um, rest stepping that they teach you to do where you kind of lock your knee for a microsecond on each step and that gives you this micro break that allows your muscles over a long time to recover. So I wore myself out. I did everything I was trained not to do, but I did it, you know, and so I I barely, I don't remember getting into camp. There's videos of it. Um, Our porters are singing in Swahili. You know, they have this song like Jumbo, Jumbo, Buana, Habari, Gani, Nzuri, Sana. So, you know, I can hear that and it's echoing off off the caves. And so I sort of hear that. Eddie, who's our guide, is right in front of me. I'm just following his footsteps. I'm looking down and, you know, I can barely breathe. I'm dying from the heat. You know, I've drank six liters of water that day and I just can't function. And uh, I remember just getting there, sitting down. I cried. I cried for a while. And then they got me into the tent and, you know, I was scared. I wasn't going to be able to finish the climb. And Mm. I for nine months so publicly talked about what my goal was and I felt like I was going to let the entire world down and you know they put me on oxygen in the tent and that got my eh? oh yeah they put me on oxygen got my levels up you know they gave me this mint mint tea with like tons of sugar in it you know warm me up a little bit and um you know and then I just ate as much as I could you lose your appetite but Mm, I ate as much as I could and they said, look, you got a decision to make in the morning. I said, you know, we'll test your oxygen in the morning and we'll decide what happens. And then you make the call whether you're going up or down. Wow. So what was, so obviously they gave you the green light medically. Yeah. Um, was it an easy decision for you or was it tough? It was, that's where I talked about learning mental toughness. Mm. That was, I was scared. I was scared because like, you know, I had young kids and my wife's back home and you know, and I'm running all the social media off all the satellite stuff. And I'm like, well, I'm going to let everybody down. And, you know, and but then I'm like, but I'm doing this for my dad. Like, you know, and like, you know, if he were here with me, he would say like, you know, you can do it. Keep going. Just go slowly. And, 
you know, my oxygen came up to about 85, 84 mm -hmm. um, that morning. So still low. Mm -hmm. And the plan that day was to go from 13,000 feet up to 15,000 feet, mm -hmm. but then come back down to 13,000 feet or 12,005 to sleep that night. So I said to them, I go, is there any way I can get to the next camp without having to go all the way up to 15? And they said, there is a bit of a cut around, you know. So why are you going up and coming back down? To acclimatize. Oh. To acclimatize. So it's part of the acclimatization plan. You always sleep lower than your highest walking point in the day. Ah. So I said, I'll do it. They gave me my own porter or my own guide to lead with me. So I didn't go with the other three groups. I went with my own guide. His name was Oreo. Mm -hmm. Amazing guide. And they sent both medical doctors with me. Oh, wow. We had two medical doctors with us. Yeah. So the four of us, um, you know, set out and we, you know, kind of went to where everyone kind of went up to the peak, but then we cut across and down. Um, hardest day of my life. I walked incredibly slow that day. Everybody else beat us to camp, even though they went up and down. Yeah. But I got to camp and that got me to sleep at the same altitude for a second night. And my body started to catch up. Okay. You know, and so I wasn't as bad, but I spent the next couple of days hiking in my own group with my own guide, not with the rest of the folks. And, mm -hmm. you know, so getting into camp an hour after everybody eating lunch alone, you know, those kind of things. Yeah. But, wow. uh, so you mentally you're hiking for six, seven hours a day and you know, you, you, d you just dig deep and you, you know, you figure it out. You obviously made it to the summit. I did. Yeah. How was that feeling like? The summit's incredible, and, and one of the things I had to tell myself, and a good friend of mine, um, Neil, who actually just summited Everest, um, yeah, he, he helped mentally prepare us. He summited Everest this spring. In mm -hmm. fact, they saved a life up there, him and another guy saved wow. someone's life. Rocks fell off a cliff. Anyway, that's another story. But yeah. Neil is this incredible climber, and I said, Neil, like all I'm doing is visualizing myself at the summit. And he goes, you're doing it wrong. Hmm. I go, what do you mean? The summit's the goal. He goes, no. Getting back to the bottom is the goal. The summit's the midpoint. Hmm. Yeah, I said, That's one way of putting it. Well, I, just, I, like, I didn't think about it that way, right? Because yeah. all you do is picture yourself on the summit, the photos, yeah. the hugs, and, and then you're like, I don't know. No one ever thinks about getting down. Getting down you, no. just, you, just, you just get up to the top. And if you look at Everest, like a lot of people die, you know, coming back on down. On the way back down. Right? Because they expend all their energy to get to the top. And then they're out of oxygen. They're delirious. You know, I read the book Into the Thin Air as I was, you know, not that Kilimanjaro is Everest, but there's principles that, sure. you know, you can apply. So anyway, I, that was always in my mind. And on summit day, I, I started earlier because they wanted us all to get there at the same time. So I went with the slow group early. And yeah. those last couple hours going up the crater rim, you're, you're in sand, basically. Huh. So every time you take a step, it's like ash, sand. You know, your foot slips back down. So every, you know, you're like two steps forward half a step back and you know you feel like you're never going to get there but then you hit the crater rim and you're just like i can see the summit life's good from there and so we got to the the summit at about two in the afternoon mm -hmm. um and i only know all of this because i looked at the timestamps on my photos okay right? okay you, you don't you know you're told you might be up there five minutes seven minutes depends how you react yeah so i ended up being up there about 40 something minutes which is incredible because some of our guys that had no problems all along got sick oh, two really? three minutes into the summit and Oh. You know, had to come down, and uh, one guy got. What, what is it about this? Like, this? Alt, it's just altitude. Okay, like, just altitude. all of a sudden, your body doesn't adjust to the altitude. Oh, okay. you know, and you don't know when it's going to happen. Yeah. So the summit's amazing. There's glaciers there. Unfortunately, they're eroding because mm. of global warming. But um, you know, I shot a video up there. You know, just to thank all my supporters. 
you know, when you listen to it back, you can hear me huffing and puffing, even though I'd been sitting down for 15 minutes. It's just the air's thin and, you know, and it's really, it's really sunny up there. The sun is strong. You know, it's really strong. Like our local guides are putting on like SPF 50 sunblock and And they live there. Yeah. And they live there. Right. They live there. And, And I'm like, all right, I'm going to reapply for the fifth time today. <laughs> like, I think I still need it, right? You know, it's hot. Yeah. It's hot. You're exposed. Oh, I um, didn't realize that. Yeah, you don't think about that. You know, we had a glorious sunny day, you know, and so it was it was really neat. A lot of hugging, a lot of tears, you know. Yeah. You know, there's a sign up there, so, you know, you take your photos in front sure. of the sign. And my favorite moment was we started to head back down when the final group was coming up. And there's mm. a moment, I don't know, we were about 10 minutes going down, so they were 10 minutes from the top. And we all just hugged each other as we passed, and and it was just you know we were like you can do it you're so close and yeah you know and that was that was something else it was and, and how long does it take to get down? So it took us seven days to go up, but yeah. we were able to get down in two days. Okay, and it only takes seven up because of acclimatization. Like you could probably do it in a day or two if if you were a guide acclimatizing all the time, you you would have no problem. Ah, uh, I, I see. It's you have to. So we kind of went up, around, up, summit. Yeah, yeah. interesting. Yeah. Uh, and only a couple of days to to get down. It's not as bad of a deal. No, because each every hundred feet you go down, you start to feel like Superman because like really? your blood your blood starts to get stronger, more oxygen, oh. and you know you feel, you know the only thing that hurts is your knees, right? Because sure, you're sure, you're running. Sure. Oh man, it's is like it going down you know, forever? That's, it is. <laughs> you painful. think it's nice, but <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I w- I'd be lying if I didn't tell you I was taking both uh, Advil and Tylenol at the same time on Jeez. the way down. Yeah, that is crazy. Not your first time though in Africa. Second time. Yeah. Second time in Africa. You won't yeah. Tell me about your first time. So my first time was also to Tanzania. Actually, yeah. that's a lie. That's a lie. I've been to Africa three times. Okay. I went to Morocco once for about three days. Okay. So Northern Africa. This is my second Africa. time in Tanzania. Second time in East Africa. Yeah, East yeah, yeah. Africa, which which if you've never been, yeah. I know you've been, but yeah. for anyone listening who's never been, it is one of the best places on earth. Yeah. I absolutely love Tanzania. Um you know, so Arusha I, specifically. Arusha is yeah. a wonderful place. Yeah. Um, I was in a small village called Tengeru teaching English at an okay. elementary school called a Kerry Primary School. And this was in 2007, in the spring of 2007. And I spent a month there. And, you know, we would do our teaching in the mornings. Then we would learn Swahili in the afternoon. We would do different cultural activities and learn. And uh, Who is this through? Was this school was, or? This is through a company called Cross Cultural Solutions. Okay. Which still exists to this day. A friend of mine had done it the year before and highly recommended it and nice. so you know we there was you know international volunteers from you know mostly western europe and north america and you know you could stay from three weeks all the way up to three months yeah so you were mixed with people that had been there shorter longer some people worked in you know hospices for people with aids they worked wow. in orphanages um at the time they had the um united nations trials for the atrocities in rwanda happening as well so i think some people might have even volunteered volunteered there so you know, there was a lot of options, but at the end of the day, we'd all come home and, you know, do our lessons and our cultural studies together. That must have been an amazing experience, eh? It was something else. It was something else. On the weekends, um, one of the groups was working with a, a local, um, his name was Kesuma. He was a Maasai warrior, and uh, he was trying to get microfinancing going for the women within the Maasai tribe. So, again, yeah. 2007, this is, this is pretty, you know, advanced stuff. And, yeah. you know, so they set up shops and, and knitting and and all that in their village and they invited us for a weekend to spend it with them in in their in their Maasai village so we did that one weekend we explored Zanzibar one weekend we did a safari one weekend and you know it's just it's just a magical place yeah absolutely yeah we were there eight years ago eight years ago my so my wife Mina she was uh born in Arusha 
Okay. So she's still got family there. So we were there for a few days, and that's sort of our base when we went to a couple of uh, uh, safaris. Um, but yeah, great place. East Africa, great, great place. Um, you, you're one of those people, Jamie, that has reinvented himself. And, and I don't know if reinvented is too strong of a word, uh, but you've done not just lots of stuff, but like different things. You started off at university doing play-by-play at Queen's University. Um, You know, most people who are sports fans would take, you know, would hear that go, Oh my God, play by that's the best job ever. (laughs) Tell me about your play-by-play experience. And not just at Queen's, you sort of, you went to the Argos as well. Yeah. 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 So I I was doing journalism at Ryerson at the time. And, Mm -hmm. and the, you know, the difficult part about Ryerson was, is they had a license for a student station, but you know, it was mostly a community station. So students really couldn't use the radio station, which is a bit of a shame at a, you know, yeah. At a university where, um, you know, they had an amazing radio television arts program, they had an amazing journalism program. And, you know, a buddy of mine was at Queens at the time and he was doing Queens football on uh, CFRC radio, which is one of the oldest radio stations in the country. Hmm. And it's completely student run at the university. They have great spoken word programming and they, they covered sports, which was a rarity for university radio stations. Yeah. And he said to me one night, I got to go call a football game in Windsor. I have no one else to do the broadcast. Do you want to come with me? Sure. Okay. I'll do that. Why yeah. not? You know, I thought, oh, it's I'm free. <laughs> yeah, I can, I can do this. So we get to Windsor. Yeah. And they were on their old field in the shadow of the Ambassador Bridge. And we get there, and this guy named John Bauer, he's actually the grandson of Johnny Bauer, the legendary oh, hockey wow. goalie. So John Bauer was the sports information director at Windsor. Hmm. Great guy, jovial guy. And he says, oh, you're the play-by-play guys for visitors. He's like, oh, well, you guys are on the third floor. And we've climbed up this giant press tower. So we go, Where, where's the third floor? We come back, we're like, John, we can't find the third floor. He's like, oh, no, it's the roof. you got to climb up that ladder onto the roof of this press tower. You're kidding me. And I'm, I'm terrified of heights. Yeah. Terrified. And I go to my buddy. I go, Dan, I can't do this game with you. I go, I'm too scared to go up there. Yeah. He said, well, can you pass me the gear up at least? I pass him the gear up. And I'm like, I can't believe I'm losing my only chance to do radio. I'm scared <laughs> to go on the roof. I'm saying to I go, John, is there anywhere else we can? Nope, roof only. Like, <laughs> okay, okay, we're going on the roof. I don't know what, how I managed to climb up this ladder, but yeah. I get up on the roof. And I'm like crawling on the roof, like I like I can't sure, stand up. I, no, it. It, took, it took me a good half hour. <laughs> so I'm on the roof, and I say to Dan, Dan Vertlieb, who I was calling the game with, I'm not coming down at halftime, and I'm not coming down at the end until the end of the game. <laughs> and it's windy. It's like a 35k wind, and he's telling me Queens has got this amazing football team, this heck Crichton award-winning quarterback Tommy Dennison. Like mm-hmm. you know, they're going to be amazing. What happens? They get their butt kicked. Like Queens gets smoked, like 35 nothing or something like that, mm-hmm. and against the team they should have won and it's miserable on the radio and i you know i'm going like hey look right over there look at that and then he's like hey we're on the radio like they can't see it you gotta describe it i'm like oh yeah no listen back to the tape i'm like boy was i terrible Do you still I was, have that ah oh, dan must have it i was yeah. awful i was just horrendous <laughs> like i was embarrassingly bad anyway the next season, and you know, through some seasoning at uh, at Ryerson, as I was still in school, and I was doing an internship at TSN at night. Okay. So I was, you know, I was learning from guys like Dan Pollard, James Duffy, some of those guys, mm-hmm. uh, and you know, I'd ask them to listen to my tapes, and they were really helpful about nice. it. And uh, you know, I said to Dan, you know, I think I'm better doing like a, a pregame show and stuff, like a little more scripted stuff. So 
you know, I created Gale Talk, which is like Queen's Golden Gale. So okay, Gale okay. Talk, a weekly 30-minute show. I'd come down to Kingston, you know, day before during practice. I'd interview players. I'd edit it all together. I don't even go to the school. Anymore. I didn't go to the school. No, people people still think I'm a Queen's grad. It's actually beneficial. You know, a lot of people, sure. I get invited to stuff. Nice. Oh, you're a Queen's guy. Oh, yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Yeah, yeah, Queen's absolutely. <laughs> Until something bad happens, then I'm like, nah, I'm not a Queen's guy. I went to Ryerson. <laughs> so, so. Anyway, I did Gale Talk, and I ended up doing color commentary anyway because I got to know the guys. And, and yeah. then Dan was away for a game. I did play-by-play for one. And then uh, the next season, I just produced pre- and post-game shows and did a national roundtable, got people from across the country. This was, again, early days. So, you know, i get people in on phone lines, and we would have this discussion and debate. And, yeah. and then uh, I, I realized there was a void. Like, I, I started doing a bit of men's hockey. Or, no, Dan was doing men's hockey. So I said, well, I want to do hockey. And I said, look, the men's team's terrible. They're like last place all the time. But the women's teams are national contenders. I go, can I do women's hockey? They're like, sure. I don't see why not. Yeah. So I would do women's hockey games all by myself from Jock Hardy Arena um, for three hours on the radio. Oh, wow. And they were good. They were really good. Like yeah. they were exciting. They'd score a lot of goals. They'd light it up. And I got to know the coach. And what he'd do is he would like pick the best player of the game, have her put skate guards on, and walk around the arena and up to the broadcast booth so I could do a post game interview because I couldn't leave where I was standing. Sure. So I would do a post game interview. And sometimes he'd come up. And, you know, so they all got to know me and they'd come up. And then the parents, Amazing. yeah, the parents were like, thanks for keeping us in, in the loop. And anyway, so then I kept doing that until I started doing play-by-play for the Argos, yeah. thanks to Keith Pelly. So nice. Tell me about th- tell me about that because you, the Argos were absent on the radio for the longest time. One season, two thousand three. Okay, two thousand three. They went into like receivership. They were off the radio. They weren't paying their bills. The team was like uh, team was almost gone. Yeah. And then uh, David Cinnamon and Howard Sokolowski purchased okay, the team. Yeah. Bless those guys for yeah. saving the franchise, and they poached Keith Pelly from TSN, mm-hmm. right? He was the CEO there. He came to run the team. Uh, I was working in the newsroom at the time at TSN, you know, yeah. writing scripts. I'm one of those guys in the background. And Ken Volden comes up to me. You know, he runs um, the newsroom, and he taps me on the shoulder, which it's like it's like everyone's like, no one's ever going to tap you on the shoulder to, to give you an opportunity, right? And, you got to go make it happen. Yeah, so Ken, Ken comes up to me. He goes, hey, uh, Steiner, I, uh, I, got a, I got an idea for you. And I go, what's that, Ken? He's like... Uh, well, I know you're always in Kingston on the weekends doing football. And, you know, so Keith Pelly just went to the Argos. You should talk to Keith. He's looking to hire some people. And I thought, Argos, I, yeah, well, I'm a BC Lions fan. I'm a Vancouver. <laughs> okay. It's Keith Pelly. He's a legend, right? So, yeah. I, you know, I, Kenny introduced me to Keith. We have an interview at 10 o'clock at night, you know, because that's Keith. Keith just, <laughs> Keith just runs a million miles an hour. So Keith's like, you know, talks to me through. And then he's like, all right, I like your kid. Like, all right, yeah, send me your resume. And uh, yeah, I said, okay. So I sent him my resume, and then he gets back to me. And again, calls me at like 9 or 10 at night, wakes me up. He's like, were you, were you sleeping? No, 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 I was awake. I was watching Sports <laughs> watching Center. Sports Center. <laughs> watching Sports Center. I wasn't sleeping. And Keith's like, sounds like you're sleeping. I'm like, no, no, no. I, I, I stay up all night, Keith. Don't worry about it. <laughs> so he's like, so A, we want to hire you. And then B, I see you do play-by-play on your resume. And uh, I don't have a play-by-play guy. And we need to get the Argos back on the radio because they were off last year. So I said, okay, so what do we do here? And he goes, well, send me your tapes or CDs at the time. Yeah. So I send him my CDs and, you know, hear back from him a week or two later. He's like, kid, you're good, but you're raw. You know what I'm going to do? You're going to produce the broadcast and I'm going to hire Paul Romanuk and he's going to call the games and you're going to learn from Romy. Romy's one of the best. I said, okay, that yeah. sounds good. So I produced the games and then Romanuk turns out it 
you know, had a deal to go call Olympic basketball that year at the Olympics in 2004. So Romy leaves in August to go call the Olympics. And so then it's like, okay, you're up. So I call my first ever game. I think I'm 25 years old. It's from the press box in Montreal um, at the Alouettes game. And if you've ever been there, the visitor radio is on the 10 yard line. So like on the field. Well, no, it's all the way down on the 10. Oh, it's, it's up high, it's but up you're high, all the way down on, on the, the 10. Yeah. Any other broadcast, you're usually on the, the 40 middle. or the 50. So yeah. you can see. So I'm on the 10. So the CFL field is 110 yards. And then it's 60 something across. So that far corner of the end zone on the other side, I, have no clue I can't there. see what's going on <laughs> over there. And you're so close to the fans that they actually put their beers on your ledge where your notes are. <laughs> and so there's the four guys that, all, that I got to know them over the years. Yeah. And, you know, the Argos would get their butt kicked to Montreal all the time. And they would like, every time the Owls would score a touchdown, they would be like, ah, they would like shake their beer at us and laugh. And, you know, I'll, I'll never forget though. The one time the Argos were winning by like 30 points, these guys start to leave in the four, in the fourth quarter. And there's like four minutes to go in the game. I mute my mic and I go, Hey, where are you going? You guys can't leave. I go, you made us sit for all these years. You're all you go, get back in your seat. You guys can't go. <laughs> so anyway, they stayed, you know, so we built this, you know, cause you're, it was fun. Right. But, but man, you couldn't see anything. And the Argos had uh, RJ Soward wearing number six and Arlan Bruce wearing number five, both fast receivers that would line up on the outside. And, yeah. You know, you can't tell six from five from like from 190 five. yards away. <laughs> so he's like, touchdown, Argos. And then you just wait, wait, wait. Arland, I mean, RJ Soward. Wow. <laughs> and then you're like, oh, no, it's Arlen Bruce. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was crazy. Yeah. How many years did you do that for? Uh, so I did the producing for the one season and called a bunch of games that year. And then I did two full seasons. So I did the full 05 season and the full 06 season. So yeah. It's good years. You know, big crowds at Rogers Center. They won the Grey Cup in 04. That was fun. And, uh, so you called the Grey Cup. So I didn't get to call the Grey Cup um, okay. because it goes to Chorus had the national rights. But oh, I did okay. in 2005 and six get to work on the Grey Cup broadcast as like, you know, pregame, postgame show and stuff okay. like that. Yeah, yeah. That must have been an awesome experience. Did you ever have visions of like that's what you were going to do? You were going to be the voice of... I don't know, of the Argos, of, of whatever, yeah. of, of a massive sports team. So that was my dream. My dream was to do play-by-play. and um, All some, those hours you're doing, going to Queens and then traveling with I, them. Well, and, and I tell you, for each broadcast, then, you know, yeah. I, should, I should share this with people because sometimes they think, you know, play-by-play, you just get out there and talk. Yeah. For each broadcast, it would take me 20 to 40 hours to prep. You know, football's, you know, there's a lot of intricacies. You know, you read the game notes for both teams. You go through all the newspaper clippings. You talk to players at practice, coaches, all of this. And I would have all sorts of notes around the radio booth. And I would have some obscure stuff. Sometimes for two years, I'd have a note. And then all of a sudden, something obscure would happen. Like a guy would return two kickoffs for a touchdown in a game. And you're like, and that's the first time he's done it. And since 1962, when Dick Shadow ran, you know, and people are like, how the hell did you know that on the fly? Well, I'm prepared so you make it seem easy yeah and i'll tell you the guy that deserves all the credit for how i prepare for a football game is chris cuthbert hmm. chris cuthbert is not only he's an amazing broadcaster but he's an amazing human being and hmm. chris took me he's a, he also got his start calling football queen's golden gales football oh wow yeah he called queen's golden gales football on cfrc and you know before he went on to like cbc edmonton and and yeah. then you know national broadcast and chris helped me prepare that there's a depth chart that we most of the broadcasters still use that chris 
had designed at CBC that he gives every you know he gave me a template of it. I got yeah. a bunch printed out at Kinko's and and all that. And so Chris taught me how to prepare properly for a broadcast, wow. you know, and I used his methods, you know, for all those years. There's so there's, there's an art to it. There, there's there's an absolute art because it's wow. it's you're describing right. You're describing the play for the people that can't listen, mm-hmm. right? And then you're also having to do storytelling, right? Because sure. you're filling a lot of air. It's it's you know, and it's weaving stories. That's the hard part. The storytelling is incredibly hard. And, and, you know, there's a reason why a lot of the play-by-play guys are older, especially on the radio, because it takes years to, to practice storytelling, but also to just know the stories. There's so much, you know, around a sports team, you know, yeah. that, that it takes a while to learn, you know, those, those little intricate stories. Like, uh, you know, I'll never forget the one time we were flying to Edmonton, for example. Great story. And Air Canada at the time had an overbooked flight. I think the plane had got switched, and so it was a smaller plane. And there was like, you know, 60-something Argo people flying on the plane. And they basically said, well, we don't have seats for, I think it was Jordan Younger and uh, Byron Parker. Okay. And they didn't have seats for these guys. So they said to Beth Waldman, who's the head of PR, like, well, you got to, yeah, you know, you're going to have to fly out. And she's like, well, they're not going to make the game. And they're like, well, then you pick who you don't want there. And Beth goes, why don't you talk to Rich Stubler, the defensive coordinator, and ask him which one of his defensive backs he doesn't need in the game. (laughs) You know, so great story. And then sure enough, we get into the game. And, you know, Argo's up by seven. Eskimo's driving in the final minute. Throw to the end zone by Ricky Ray. And Byron Parker intercepts the ball and takes it back, right, and seals the game. Nice. And so I tell the story. I go, you know, that moment almost didn't happen because Byron Parker almost didn't make the flight because here's what happened, right? Yeah. And it's those moments that, you know, if you don't if you're not there to see it, you can't tell that story. Yeah, that is that is so true. So what happened there? Yeah. So the radio business is a tough business. Yeah. It is a tough business. And, you know, going into the two thousand seven season, Argos were hosting the Grey Cup in Toronto. Life was good. I was actually in Africa doing the volunteering in Tanzania. Okay. Yeah. And uh, you know, I was gonna be getting married um not long after I came back from that. Yeah. Um Keith Pelly and I had, had negotiations for my contract and he said actually I signed a new contract with the club. Yeah. And he said, Look, you know, AM six forty is not renewing their radio rights, but we'll work on it while you're in Africa and we'll yeah. sort it out when you're back. Yeah. Uh I come back and he goes, Look, Bad news. Things went south with AM640. Fan590 bought the rights for the year because they want to be involved with the Grey Cup in Toronto. Mm-hmm. And as a result, they want to use their own broadcaster. They want to use Mike Hogan. So, sure. unfortunately, you know, you're out of a job. And, you know, you're, we're happy to have you keep writing for the website. CFL.ca had me writing for them. And I applied for the Hamilton Ticats radio job because that was open too. Tim McAuliffe had gone on to do more TV. Yeah. And... At the end of the day, Scott Mitchell made the decision they wanted a local Hamilton guy because of the rivalry. They didn't want a guy that had been doing the Argos. And and that was tough. That was tough. So, you know, in the end, I didn't know what I wanted to do. You know, it's not like play-by-play jobs come along very often. And Mm -hmm. it's not like you can sit out and get back in when you're that young and that raw. And so, you know, I did, you know, various odds and ends for, you know, writing and stuff. Like, you know, I'm sure most people that have been in – the business, as mm-hmm. we call it, no, it's, you know, you, you scrap and claw. And I decided to go back to school and get an MBA at, at U of T at Rotman. Okay. And I was going to go full time. And then Matt Maychak and Chris McCracken from the Canadian Football League called me up and said, you know, we're looking to revamp our website. How would you like to, you know, come and do the content? And, and at first I said, well, that's amazing. I'd love to, but, you know, I'm going to go do my MBA. And they said, well, why don't you do it part time and work for us? 
I said, that's, you know, I didn't think of that. That's yeah. a good, good solution. And so in May of 2008, I joined the Canadian Football League to run all the content on the website. And August of 2008, I started as a part-time morning student, going to class 7 to 9 a.m. at the Rotman School of Management. That's when you started. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. All righty. It worked out perfectly because you go to school in the morning. Yeah. Work during the day and football's at night so i'd work at sure. night and you know i was used to working seven days a week anyway yeah, yeah, so what's, what's what's you know more hours and and that was amazing you know working for the legal office we went from putting press releases and logos up on the website to creating original documentaries and you know launching social media uh you know telling player stories telling official stories like we mic'd up officials for documentaries and the early days of before you know miking up was that big and, yeah you know we had access right you know, we didn't have a huge budget, but we had access to players and teams. And this was al- almost at the time when, you know, the Facebooks and the Twitters of the world are are, are, are hatching mm-hmm. um, and, and are becoming ways that people are communicating, not just with each other, but they're now talking to brands. They're now, oh, my goodness, my favorite athlete or musician mm-hmm. is on Twitter and I tweet at them and they like something. Oh, you know, Um how was that? Um, how did that affect your job? And, and what did you have to do to sort of catch up or stay on the cutting edge? So people seem to forget that yeah. sports leagues in the early days of social media were banning the players from using it. There were rules that you couldn't use it 30 minutes before and after a game. Cause, That's right. Because the media yeah. was like, well, they're, they're you know scooping our story. They're breaking our news. The mm. athletes are... You know, now we laugh. Well, like, you know, like you follow LeBron James to know where LeBron James is going to sign, right? We don't, you know, wait for an announcement. It's like, oh, hey, look, I'm landed in Los Angeles on my private jet today. And everyone's like, oh, he's going to the Lakers, you know? (laughs) So um, at the time, you know, I I brought up the idea of Twitter to, you know, my bosses and said, like, you know, the commissioners, Mark Cohan, the commissioner, had asked us to put fans at the center of everything we do. And I said, look, there's this. Web 2.0. Remember Web 2.0? Yeah. It was Web 2.0 in late 2008 going into 2009. And I said, like, we should be on social media and Twitter with these guys and, you know, with the league. And I spent the, you know, the winter holidays of 2008 going into 2009 testing Twitter, came back, signed CFL up on Twitter and brought it up. And everyone just said, like, I don't get this. Like, oh, you're a twit. Laughed about it. Yeah. All the jokes. I don't care yeah. what people are having for lunch. And, yeah. and I said, so is that a yes or a no? <laughs> And the answer I got was, as long as you do your day job, we don't care what you do. You know, just make sure the content stays on the website. Yeah. Done. Yeah. Launch social media. And uh, Nick Lewis of the Calgary Stampeders and Tad Cornegay, I believe of Saskatchewan Rough Riders at that time, those two guys were some of the, you know, biggest talkers on the field. And they became two of the biggest talkers off the field. Um, Toronto Argo, you know, tough guy offensive lineman Rob Murphy you know, he started chiming in, and there was there was a bunch of guys in the early days. Angus Reed from the BC Lions. I'm I'm sure I'm missing guys, but there were a bunch of guys that started interacting with fans, chiming in. You know, getting into fake Twitter fights online, and all the other leagues were saying no Twitter, no Twitter. Yeah. And we had these amazing guys, and then a fan out in BC, a BC Lions fan named Brian Morrison. He was one of our early on fans, and he said to me, he goes, "Well, we're doing a tweet up at Grey Cup, right?" Yeah, and I'm like what's a tweet up? You know, so I Google, I Google tweet up. I'm like, what's this tweet up stuff? And I'm like, oh yeah, of course we're doing it. Oh yeah, for sure we're doing a tweet up. Yeah, yeah, we had it planned all along, right? <laughs> I'm like, what's a tweet up? And so 
you know, Brian's like, well, I can help organize this and that. And it was in Calgary. And, you know, we're late in the year. So, you know, all the places are booked up. I managed to get a basement of some bar for two hours on a Saturday or something or a Friday. And, you know, so we, there's no budget. I got $200 budget. So I bought like nachos and, and, and wings and, you know, a couple pitchers of beer. And we invited, I don't know, one event bright 25, 30 fans showed up. Uh, the commissioner came, had beers, took some photos, wow. which was amazing. But he sure. was the people's commish, right? That was Mark Cohan. Like yeah. he was, he would get you know elbow to elbow with the fans, and you know he was good like that. So yeah. he came and did that, but I couldn't get the Grey Cup because it had been booked for months. Yeah. So you know, and the players, Tad Cornegay and Nick Lewis came, which the fans were like, "Oh my God, I'm meeting the players I'm tweeting with." Everyone was sending their pictures out on TwitPic because Twitter didn't have that's a right. they didn't have a native that's Twitter. Right. Wow. Oh, TwitPic. And so that's <laughs> that was that was the that was the start of it. And every year it grew and it became the hottest ticket in town. The next year I got the Grey Cup. And the Grey Cup came and fans got to touch it, hold it, take photos with it. Commissioner came, more players came, we got prizes. Uh, Molson and Telus both got involved. Telus gave away two phones. Molson gave away like beer gift certificates, and it became like a real family event. It was like a family reunion, and each year yeah. it grew and grew and grew. And that that was, you know, to me that was social media, right? It was is is meeting those people face to face for the first time, and you know, putting in putting a face to an avatar or to a sure, to a sure. handle. Yeah, absolutely. And I think we like we started or or I first met you. I think when you were managing the website, um, and I think I might have been writing for Tech Vibes yep. um, at the time. Um, and then we met at Sports Connect. Correct. Did we, meet, we didn't meet before, did we? It was, that I was, I remember. believe it was early 2010, and they did Sports Connect TO, and I think you might have invited me to it. or yeah. that, That's about when we met, and that's when the, yeah. the sports community started to like form a bond with each that's other right. in the city. Yeah, because yeah. it was you, it was... Uh, uh, oh my goodness, John Sinden. Yep, from MLSE. Yeah, and uh, the guy from the Jays, Rob Jack. Rob Jack. Um, and you know, where's Aaron, he at these days? Because he's not with the Jays anymore I for a few years. Get where he went now. But Aaron Burry, I think, hosted it, didn't Aaron she? Aaron Burry, yeah, no. yeah. Then of Sprouter. Yep. Now of eighty-eight, yep. Creative eighty-eight. Yeah. Uh, was hosting. Uh, we had it at the uh, at Ryerson's brand new digital media zone. That was a big deal back. Then. No, that still was a huge. big, still a big deal. But that was like cutting yeah, edge, right? Yeah, because that was the first event that they ever hosted. Yeah, and I think it was open for less than a year. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that was that. That was sort of my foray into social media and yeah. and, and and that sort of stuff. Um, but so, I, so you, go ahead. Well, I was gonna say, and then. I gave away a behind-the-scenes tour of the CFL offices that's, in the command center. That's right. And, and then came. invited you and some of the other folks. And the commissioner and was there. You got to meet the commission. You got to come in the uh, the decision room where they would – the war room where they made the calls on that's the field. Right. and Tom, I think I still have a video of that on YouTube. Oh, we, we had a fun time. Yeah, Tom Higgins, who was then the head of officiating, right. gave us a tour. We walked over to the Argos game. We walked around the field. That's right. right that was a good night. That, that was, was about a, 10 of us, 12 of us. It, yeah. was, it was packed. The winners were there. Yeah. Um, and then our, our – Sports Connectio committee, yeah, was uh, was there as well. That was yeah, that was a fun time. That was a good night. That was really really good. That was really really fun. And it's interesting because, you know, most people would look at the Argos as the third fourth team mm-hmm. in Toronto, um, but you guys were leading um, sports in Toronto in terms of fan engagement. Yeah, on social. 
And that was always a hallmark of the Canadian Football League is, you know, we had a policy to follow everyone back. We had a policy to engage with everybody who was respectful. Yeah, yeah, sure. You know, and, and, and we did that for a long time. We prided ourselves. And that was before tools like Hootsuite, early days of TweetDeck where you, where you yeah. could collaborate as a team on it. So a lot of times we were texting back and forth. Oh, I already replied to at Kareem Kanji. Like, yeah. don't reply to him. Or, you know, you'd have to check the sent messages to make sure that you weren't duplicating efforts. You yeah, know, yeah. So. absolutely. So you go from play-by-play play yep. in football to, um, I guess, fan engagement, marketing, storytelling. Storytelling. Yeah, storytelling. Um, you know, head office, um, still with football. Mm-hmm. And then you leave both of those <laughs> behind. So, right, like I said earlier, right, you, you've another change. You know, you, you still sort of go on this um, social media. You sort of still focus on that. But you'll leave sports behind. Another big change for you. So what was that decision like? The one thing people don't get about sports, right? Because for most people, that's their release from life or that is their break, right? That's sure. their pastime. Yeah. When when you've worked in sports for a decade like I have, you've never known a Canada Day weekend. You've never known a Thanksgiving weekend because you're always working oh. when everybody else is off. Yeah. And you know, he's starting to have a family and I had to make a decision. You know, wow. my, my goal at the time was to be a sports executive You know, I wanted to be, you know, like CEO of a team or something. Yeah. And I had to make a call. Like, do I continue to like climb my way up internally or do I go get some experience outside of here that I can translate back later on in life? Yeah. I only had one chance and that was completing my MBA was my only chance I had to break the sports mold because there's, there's a bit of a stigma out there that like, Ah, sports is easy. You know, you couldn't hack it in another job. And mm. So part of it was me. Saying, Everyone's going to engage with the sports team. Yeah, it's easy. Yeah. It's easy, whatever. And so yeah. I, I said, you know, like I need to show I can do other work. And so I got to know Mark Nicholson at Tangerine Bank, who was running the digital at the time. And Mark um, and I got along quite well when we first met. And, you know, they lost their social person around Christmas time. And I'd finished my MBA a few months before. And that was kind of the window where I could change mm. industries without it being awkward or very difficult yeah so i reached out to mark and said hey i saw you lost your social person you know what are you what are you looking to do to replace them yeah and uh he said why are you interested and i said i am and he said call me tomorrow mm-hmm. so you know i called him and uh the reason why i liked ing director tangerine bank was because they had a social ceo mm. and in peter acido and yeah. they were a challenger brand and they did things differently and they weren't scared to upset the status quo. And so at the end of the day, it all worked out. And I left into banking, which is as far away from sports as you could probably get, maybe yeah. shy of pharmaceuticals. Yeah. And so, you know, I joined there and people said, like, I don't understand. No one understood. They said, you left sports for a bank. That makes no sense. And mm. I said, look, think about it this way. Look at it differently. I left one social organization for another social organization. Yeah. I said, look. As the CFL was trailblazing social, here's a bank with their CEO on social. Yeah. No one else has executives on social. No one else in the banking world does. Mm-hmm. You know, what What an opportunity. It's cutting edge. And so that's what drove me there was to be part of that innovation and, you know, and work work with Peter directly and, and work with that team to, you know, reinvent banking. Yeah. Um, a lot of milestones. Are, I think the, the biggest one that I can think of, and correct me if I'm wrong, is when they rebranded. I did a tangerine. There was a lot of, from what I remember you telling me just briefly, you know, a lot of behind the scenes stuff. Um, War room, I think, was mm-hmm. something that you guys had to put together. 
tell me about that experience. So not very often in your life do you get to, you know, completely rebrand a company that's yeah. that big, right? Like a sure. thousand employees. I think there's $40 billion in assets under management. Like this is, you know, it's coast to coast. It's English, it's French. And, you know, we got acquired by Scotiabank from mm -hmm. our Dutch parents and we had 15 or 16 months to change the name. We did negotiate the ability to keep the orange color. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you have to prepare for that, you know, guy or girl on Twitter at the end of the day that's going to say, oh, I could have come up with that. What a stupid name, right? Sure. So, so I kind of started there with that person and I'm like, okay, how do I tell a story where that person's not going to say, oh, that's a stupid name. I could have come up with that. And so, you know, we had agencies and we, you know, we got the name and, uh, you know, I remember the first time it was shown to me, it was shown to me on like in aerial font on a black and white PowerPoint. And I signed like extra NDAs because I was like the seventh or eighth person to see it. And you're like, I want to do yeah. <laughs> and, they, and they show it to me and they're like, Mark and, uh, and I think it was Gaurav Singh, who was, the, you know, the, another marketing guy at the time leading the transition. They're like, so what do you think? And me being the outspoken person that I am, the first sure. words out of my mouth, they're like, what were the other options? <laughs> I look back now, I'm like, what an asshole I was. <laughs> and then, you know, it started to grow on me, right? Because, it's you know, it takes some time. And then, you know, you start seeing the presentations and the brand vision and essence and, yeah. you know, and here's the font we want to go with. And we want to go with this font and this, you know, you're like, okay. You know, it grew on me. You know, my team hated it too when I showed it to them, but then yeah. it grew on them because sure. you, you know, you start to live with it. And um, that was interesting because we had to secure the social handles. We had to, you know, websites. We had to do all that stuff. So we were basically doing two jobs. We were doing our regular job and working on brand transition team, yeah. which was an experience I'll never trade for in my life because, you know, how often do you get to do that? Sure. And we were one of the early people in social media going through such a substantial brand change. So there mm -hmm. wasn't a playbook. We were creating the playbook. I do have to give a shout out to Graham Latham, who at the time was running Mountain Equipment Co-op or Mech Social Media. Mm -hmm. I got introduced to him and we've stayed friends to this day because they had changed their logo. That's right. And that caused an absolute shitstorm on their Imagine social channels. That, eh? Yeah, changing a logo. Yeah. <laughs> you know, of all the problems we face in the world, <laughs> the logo change. And, logo but, change. but their members didn't like it because their members were like hardcore campers and outdoors people and yeah and all of a sudden it's like oh you've turned our logo corporate yeah what are you doing this is a co-op you're ruining everything and yeah. you know and you know grandpa's shaking his stick in my day we wouldn't have, you know we anyways yeah. they, they helped me out um with some of that and at the same time we were working closely with hootsuite in vancouver mm -hmm. and hootsuite was pioneering this new uh, service called a social media crisis simulation. Mm. They'd done a couple with a couple power companies. Yeah. And basically, they created a bunch of fake accounts and created a scenario, and your team oh. would sit around and deal with it. So yeah. I worked with them and said, I want the crisis to be a brand renaming. And what I want is I want advocates. I want people who are confused about it. I want um, angry employees, positive employees. I want the world's worst trolls. I want some bad trolls. Mm -hmm. Let's build a three-hour simulation. Yeah. So we did. Yeah. <coughs> and what I did is I built a war room table in the main boardroom at Tangerine, yeah. and I had a two-layer strategy. So layer one was the people that were going to be on social media. Each of them was logged into their Hootsuite dashboard. 
they had different tasks and roles. And layer two was I had a translator because we were going to get English and French. We sure. do the simulation in English and French. I had our head of PR in there because things would have to get escalated to um, her at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had Scotiabank's PR. They were in there. We had Scotiabank's social media team in there just in case there was like people tagging both accounts so we could verbally talk yeah. about our plan. We had um, our CMO because we need an executive in there to – you know, if anything really escalated, A-okay our, our CEO came because he socially wanted to be part of it, yeah. you know, and, and oversee what we were doing. We had brand agency. We had the, I don't even know who they were. We'll call them design agency. The guys that came up with the font and okay. like the, and the logos for the <laughs> apps. Yeah. You know, when someone complained about like Swiss circular font, our guys <laughs> don't know. So it's like, hey, hey, brand guy, come on over. So, you know, and that was what it is, is you put your hand up and you called out translator or PR or whatever, yeah. and they could come sit with you and help you do it. Yeah, And we went through this exercise, and what happened was is we got completely derailed by the trolls. We didn't amplify the positive people, and we, and we got way too stuck. And then organically, my team, about an hour and a half in, started saying, you know what? These guys are trolling us. Let's put their name on the board, and we won't respond to them anymore. And what ended up happening is we created the troll board, and we actually created a list of people that were not so anyway when the day came yeah. you know we sat in a hollow square i'm a big fan of a hollow square setup it's it's okay. a nerdy thing but so everyone can see in see each towards other? each other yeah so make eye contact hey kareem yeah. do you have this yeah. so we had our list and we created what we called the one and done strategy yeah which was you could take one shot at us hey tangerine's a stupid name like you guys are idiots and then we would respond and say, hey, here's our video. Here's our assets. Here's this, whatever. And if they responded again to us, we would say to them, no way. We'd say, you're done. We wouldn't respond, and we moved on. And so what we decided is social media is a bit like follow the leader. So if we yeah. could uh, amplify all the positive people off the bat, neutralize all the trolls, we could get sentiment driven way up. So what we did is in those first let me back up. We invited and flew in about 20 influencers into Toronto, mm-hmm. put them up, had them meet with our CMO the morning of the announcement. He took them through the whole change. Remember wow. I told you yeah. told you about that guy or girl that, oh, I could have come up the, with that. Yeah. These people got everything. We gave them the works, um, the, the, the decks, the presentations. They quizzed our CMO. Then we took them to an offsite, brought them back, and we had our big event in Toronto. And... They were armed with, you know, those talking points. And, you know, they could say whatever they wanted, but we armed them with behind the scenes. Sure, sure, sure. And we had taken all of our PR talking points from the crisis sim, which we learned were too long, made social media crisis points for the Mm. first time in my life. And, you know, everything went off without a hitch. As soon as it launched, we started retweeting all our influencers who we had on a Twitter list and and pushed all this positive stuff out. Then everyone is like, oh, Kareem likes this? Well, I'm not going to go against Kareem or, you know, oh, so-and-so supports this. And so we saw people got on board with it because other people right you know there's this network effect and we ended up getting close to 75 percent positive sentiment at the beginning and only about you know 20 percent negative sentiment and then it you know kind of leveled out yeah yeah. you know and it ended up working out really good i thought we'd get 50 50 but we ended up ending up i think it was 20 percent neutral five percent negative and 75 percent uh positive that's amazing And and it was awesome and it was because we you know, we let the trolls argue with, you know, we just didn't give them a light of day, right? We suffocated yeah. them out and amplified the positive and, you know, looked for media who we could retweet as well and looked for the confused people. We decided that we could help 
people that were confused or people that were asking questions, we could turn them into positive. Sure. Uh, but people that were like far detractors, it's not worth it. You're not no, going to change no. their mind. Yeah. We all know that. So, yeah. you know, like back to the top of the show, like the people that don't like the King Street car are never going <laughs> to like the King Street car. So that is so true. Um, another, um, I still have a scarf. Yes. And I, and I, is it an ING scarf? I think it's, I have an ING scarf. And I know there was a tangerine scarf. Um, what was that program? So I have to, again, everything I've ever done is someone else's someone idea. Someone else's idea. <laughs> yeah. I'll never, I'll never profess to take you know, some credit for someone else. So a guy named Dave Olson. Yeah one, yeah, of, yeah. one of the most incredible guys in the world. Yeah. He was like the original vice president of community for Hootsuite. Yeah. And one year at South by Southwest, they created these scarves, uh, soccer scarves. When soccer That's scarves right. were just popular. So yeah. this is like, you know, 29, 2010 you know, TFC's taken off, you know, like we're getting this sort of cultural revolution in the country around yeah, soccer or in yeah. the continent, really. Sure, sure. You know, and so they created these Hootsuite scarves and like they went like hotcakes and they became like a tradable commodity. Mm. And I'm like, geez, like a brand, you know, tradable commodity is crazy. And at the time, you know, when I, I had one from Dave and I joined Tangerine and we're looking at ambassadors and, you know, we've got these That's right, ambassadors, crappy, crappy swag that, you know, yeah. pencils and stuff. No, people throw Mugs. it out, right? <laughs> yeah, it's like, you know, last a minute. So I said, I've called Dave because he's the godfather. I said, Dave, look, I want to emulate what you've done. I pitched him my idea. He goes, you have my blessing. Yeah. So Dave gave me his blessing. Yeah. So, you know, he even gave me a supplier and everything. So we designed the first ever um, ING Direct Scarf and we made 365 of them. Yeah. One for each day of the year. And the plan was is to give, you know, on average one a day to someone who embodied our values on social media. So mm -hmm. whether they help people with saving money, gave sure. good tips, bloggers that were helping people, you know, do it yourself kind of stuff. And people that were part of our community, people like you that were working in our co-working space. Yeah. Right. And we we just started to build a community. And, you know, we gave some to employees who were on social media. We were trying to get more people on social and it took off. People wanted them. They were willing to trade like their left arm for one. Like we were getting <laughs> people willing. To, and we said, look, all you have to do is set up a Twitter account, tweet about ING Direct. We'll send you one, Yeah. you know, or post on our Facebook page, you know. And so, you know, first year we gave out a lot of them, not all of them. And then the second year we got three designs and crowdsourced, you know, with, with our ambassadors, which one do you want out yeah. of the three? And then we went with the design they picked and, you know, again, and then, you know, everyone always says, oh, I want an ambassador or an influencer program. I'm launching X product next week. Can you do that for me? And I say, no, because, you know, it's not authentic. These are people we met with when we would travel around Canada. We'd have coffees with them. We'd invite them to dinner. And so when it came time to launch our new brand, people are like, where'd you find your influencers? I said, they've been part of our family for three, four years. We're mm. just inviting them to be part of this major event for us. So we had a list of, you know, 50, 100 people and we, you know, we had budget for our top 20 and we invited, you know, those people and we didn't tell them why they were coming to Toronto. We just oh. said, we're going to fly you to Toronto for two days. We have a major announcement. Yeah. You know, here's some of the things you're going to do. Stay tuned. You know, do you trust us? Yeah. And I don't think anyone said no. You know, they sure. all said, I'm in. Yeah. And they got here and, you know, we picked them up and, you know, Melissa Lumens, I got to give her a lot of credit. Yeah. She was running that program and, you know, arrange for transportation and arrange for events and everything. And we had a dinner catered in our cafeteria at ING Direct that night. And yeah. they got to meet with the bank's executives, CEO, some of the senior leadership, ask whatever product questions they wanted. And we let them in inside, you know, peek behind the curtain. And then the next morning, like I said, they had a private one-on-one -on -one session with our CMO. And he said, look, we're announcing our new brand today. And you've been invited to be, people were like, what? 
<laughs> you know, because they knew there was something coming, but they didn't know when. And yeah, you know, and Andrew Zamakis, our CMO, you know, explain, you know, eloquently explained what we were doing, and mm-hmm. you know, and people loved it, and they asked questions, and they, you know, and they got out any anxieties, and you know, and then that afternoon they were invited to the big launch. Nice. No walk. You guys also had walk off the earth. We had walk off the earth. S- yeah. And Macklemore. Macklemore. And he was hot then. He was huge. We had. 900 employees plus ambassadors and a few media yeah. in a th- the theater up in Mel Lastman Square there, uh, York, uh, Young. Toronto and, uh, Center for the Arts. Yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. And and we had a private event. And the kicker was I was able to negotiate because we got 40 um, you know, photos against the backdrop with Macklemore. That's what his people agreed to. Yeah. I managed to get five of those spots reserved for our ambassadors. So we've nice. got photos of our ambassadors and their scarves with Macklemore and Ryan Lewis. We can't forget Ryan Lewis. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, uh, from that event. And it was like a dream dream event for people. Sure. And I have to say, Macklemore was a complete gentleman. He was so friendly, so nice, so helpful. You know, our social team, Rochelle um, Harari on my social team, was in charge of taking photos and getting them on social. And, yeah. you know, celebrities can be difficult. And she said to Macklemore's guy, like, what's the deal? Like, what, what do I have permission for? And he said, look, you take all the photos you want, you hand me your phone, and I'll just delete the ones that – we don't want out there. Yeah. Okay. Fair deal. Yeah. She brought back, you know, I don't know, 30 photos. He deleted three of them. Wow. We're, we're back and we're just, you know, his face was weird or whatever. Yeah. And, you know, in a picture, cause you're singing and you look, sure. and that was it. And, and he was amazing to deal with. And nice. it was such a great day. It was a positive day. And, you know, the Scotia execs were looking at our, everyone wanted to hang out in our social media war room. It was like, all the action was there. What's happening. What's going on. Let me see your screen. It was, uh, yeah, was, that was, that was really, really, that cool. was a highlight. That was a pinnacle of my career. That was, or, or a pinnacle in my career, I should say. That yeah. was that was an amazing time. Um, and then you shocked the world. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know about that. Muhammad Ali shocked the world. Muhammad Ali shocked the world. Fair enough. Um, but you took your services to the West Coast. Um, again, uh, an, another switch. Um, going from banking um, to literally doing social media for a social media company. Um, but going from Toronto to Vancouver, um, not a bigger move. I, I think in hindsight, because you're quote unquote going back home. Yes. Um, but a lot of people would say, wow, you're, you're going from the, you know, the big smoke, you know, to, you know, sleepy town sort of thing. Yeah. What was, um, and, and I know we, you and I had spoken, um, and I know you, you had told me you knew that you, some changes needed to be made and stuff like that personally. Uh, but tell me about that move. Yeah, so anyone that knows me, and if you've been listening along this long, thank you. Yeah. Um, I'm, a, I'm a big, big extrovert. And Toronto yes, is, is a great city for extroverts. Yeah. It's It was an amazing city. I moved here in 2000, so I would have been 21, 22 when I moved here. And it was an amazing place to be when you know you're young and single. And then when I met my wife, she was my girlfriend. Yeah. You know, you're a you know, dual income, no kids. Yeah. You know, there's restaurants and shows, and you can get on a plane to just about anywhere from here. You know, Chicago, New York. Yeah. Loved it. But, as I'm sure people in Toronto know, like, it started to get hard to get around. We had two kids back-to-back, so 17, 18 months apart. I was working at ING Direct at DVP and Steels. Anyone that Mm -hmm. drives the DVP every day knows how hard it was. And, you know, I could never get home in time for dinner. I would get home, and I would, you know, I'd be worn out, and I just... I, I kind of got worn out in Toronto. You know, it was around the same time as, you know, the Rob Ford years and, and politics got really snippy then. It was thing, I think it was like early Kathleen Wynne 
got mm-hmm. in premier and, and and everyone was just it became such a polarized society and it became mm. you know car versus transit yeah. you know and, and and that wore me down because oh. you know i love driving my car in the city and i also love taking the subway and the ttc i've been yeah. subwaying and ttc all week yeah. i've mixed in a couple uber rides like yeah. you know I, like it, it became a zero-sum game here it wasn't it was like either or as opposed to and yeah like why can't you know, you you know, you enjoy a drive and enjoy yeah, the subway sure. or enjoy the streetcar. Yeah. And so I found it just it was becoming a tough, tough society. Mm. You know, people we kind of lost a bit of neighborliness. People, you know, were people were kind of at each other for a bit there. Yeah. You know, and so for me, you know, I think I was at that point where I wanted to go back to Vancouver. It's, mm. it's a small town. It's growing. But sure, it's a small sure. town. Yeah. I, you know, I can get everywhere in 10 minutes, basically. Yeah. And I remember uh, Robin Hibbard, who was one of the execs from Scotiabank, saying, like, well, if you go back to Vancouver, you know, you're going to be off the radar. You know, that's a career dead end. You know, we're still buddies and we joke about it. But I said, well, look, I'm going to Hootsuite. You know, I'm going home. You know, I've got my mom, my brother around. And I think it's a good place to raise kids. We've got the ocean. We can ski every weekend. You know, I love the mountains. That's where I recharge. Yeah. And so we made the move. It's prohibitively expensive to live in Vancouver. I won't lie. Yeah. But we live in a smaller place. You know, kids share a room. And, uh, you know, we added a third once we moved there, my daughter Ruby. And I love our life there. You know, we went camping two weekends ago. No cell phone service. It's amazing. So I work my butt off all week. Yeah. And then I disappear to the mountains to ski on the weekends or to camp, you know, in uh, Vancouver Island. It's almost like all of us here in Toronto go, yeah, Jamie doesn't work. He's he's figured out some way. <laughs> <laughs> it looks like it. It looks. He gets paid to take photos of sunsets. <laughs> it's true. It's true. But I'll tell you the difference. In Toronto, you say, "What do you do?" Someone says, oh, "I work here. Or I work there." In Vancouver, someone says, "What do you do?" They say, "Oh, I ski. I kayak. I sail." Yeah. Right. And it's just a different mentality. And yeah, you know, it's but it's tough. I'll tell you because, like, you know, when it came time to move on from Hootsuite, there's not a lot of jobs for senior people in Vancouver. Yeah. You know, like, and then that was the career dead end I was warned about. And, you know, when I made my next decision on where to go, I was down to three options and all three, I would have been working remote for a large company. Mm-hmm. So that is and the that's challenge. another difference. That's, that's another big, change. big difference. Yeah. Because, you know, let's let's not kid ourselves. Most headquarters are in Toronto. Yeah. You know, walk. You know, I just walk down King Street here and all I have to do is look up and see every every company that everyone knows in Canada. Yeah, that's true. Uh, one of the things that you did at Hootsuite, which correct me if I'm wrong, you sort of taken that with you to uh, ICUCs. You you created your like a position, yes, for yourself. Um, tell me about that. So, you know, as you said, I was running the social media. Well, I had an amazing team running the social media. I was yeah. managing that team, and you know, one day they say, Jamie, like we've got this client or prospect we'd love you to come talk to, mm-hmm. you know, based on your experience. And I said, okay, sure. You know, what do you want me to say? Oh, just talk about what you've done. You yeah. know, you're, you know, everything we've talked about for the last hour. Yeah. I said, okay. So I got in. I said, hey, nice to meet you. I'm Jamie. What are you guys looking to do? Or what do you hope to accomplish? And they tell me. And, you know, an hour later, we're, we're best friends and we're having the time of our lives. <laughs> and, you know, I come out and I say to the sales guys, I go, I hope that went okay. Because we didn't talk about selling. Like, I yeah. feel bad that you guys didn't get to do your thing. Close your deal or whatever. And they said, oh, no, that's the best meeting we've ever had. And I said, but all I did was talk to them about social media and strategy. And they're like, yeah, that's all. That's what we want. We don't know how to do that. You know how to do that. Mm. And I thought, that's interesting. I never thought about what I was doing is very unique, right? Because yeah. when you're in it, you just, you're just doing your job. 
true. You know, sometimes it takes an outsider to know what your value is. Yeah. So at the time we added a new VP of customer success and, you know, my current boss at the time, a guy named Cam Uganic, was saying to me, like, you know, I could see a future for you doing that. Like, you really like to meet with these clients and help them. Mm-hmm. And I said, ah, I'm not a sales guy. I would never go into sales. Like, yeah. you know, when I worked at the bank, people would just pitch me all day and leave voicemails and it drove me nuts. Yeah. You know, because I could never understand what they were talking about. It's not yeah. that I didn't want to talk to them. Yeah. You know, they would read from a script and I'm like, I don't know what that, like, how does that tech help me? Yeah. You know, tell me a story. Yeah. yeah. You know, give me a case study. So. Anyway, I talked to Roger Ord, who's the new VP of customer success there, and said, look, I think I could help you, and here's what I want to do. And basically, it became like a quasi-consultant, you know, sales, customer success kind of role. And he's like, I need that in about three months once I get set up. Or no, what do you say, six months once I'm set up. Yeah. Three months later, I'm like, Roger, I need to make this move. I want to do that. And he's like, that's good. I'm ready for you. So he created a role for me called Customer Success Executive. Yeah. They had customer success managers. My job was to basically go in on our strategic accounts and, you know, help help solve their problems, understand their social goals, mm. and then align the Hootsuite product to that. Hmm. So I was kind of this middleman, you know, speaking the client language and translating into the salesperson language. Yeah. And then, then I would walk away and move on to the next move one. Move on to the next one. And then that grew and I ended up having my own team and you know, spent I spent 135 nights on a plane last year. I was That's in crazy. 14 countries yeah. in you know in Europe, uh, Australia, uh, Singapore, Thailand, uh, Philippines, you know, all across the United States, you know, working with with you know a lot of government agencies from around the world mm-hmm. uh, who are really working hard to get into social media, a lot of banks, a lot of uh, you know, large brands. And it yeah. was, it was amazing. Where, where are we now? You know, you start off in, in social media as, you know, here's a place where we're going to talk to fans. Um, and today, you know, I'm, um, you know, I'm, I'm helping with paid strategy uh, for brands. And those are sort of, it seems to me like two polar ends um, of this, of this industry. Um, where where are we how how are companies using social is social you know and and back when social started it it sort of created its own silo almost um it could be in sales it could be in communications and pr anywhere um what should social be today for companies you feel so i had an interesting conversation with a client here in toronto today and yeah you know, he, he does performance marketing, so he does the paid social. Mm-hmm. Uh, he does a lot of the SEO, you know, and he's telling me, you know, he's not connected with their email team. Okay. So the email team sends out a huge email blast promoting Canada Day products. Sure. He basically referred to it as the biggest advertisement for Amazon because they didn't talk to his team about SEO and paid, you know, paid social. Mm-hmm. So instead of running paid social and SEO that align to the email blast, mm-hmm. so when people go searching for it online, they end up in their you know company's stuff. They just find generic Amazon ads for those things, yeah. and off they go to Amazon. Yeah. So social has to be integrated into your entire marketing stack. So when the email does go out promoting you know X Y Z for Canada Day, mm-hmm. your paid social is running X Y Z for Canada Day. Your SEO is tuned for XYZ for Canada Day and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's one example where, where I see social and, and it breaks my heart a little bit because we've moved so far to paid. Mm-hmm. 
Mm. You know, that everyone is like, oh, we can measure the performance, you know, forget organic. But this is the problem we found ourselves in in 2005, 6, 7, where we were so focused on, you know, messaging and the brand that that we forgot to be human with people. Mm. And people still have this desire to have a human person respond. And it's very, very hard to measure those micro moments that happen where an airline retrieves like a bag or a dog for somebody that's gone missing. Or, you know, I'll give an example, Keen Sandals. I was in Guatemala two years ago, brand new Keens, hiking in a river, come out of the river. I'm like, oh, my God, they've ripped. Like what? My last pair of Keens had lasted me 14 years, and these ones are done in, you know, a month. Mm -hmm. So I tweet a picture of them and say, hey, Keens, you know. I always try to be respectful. I don't, yeah. I, I just can't handle when people flame brands. So I said, Hey guys, you know, just thought you should know, like, these are new sandals. Here's what happened to them. Just wanted you to be aware in case, you know, maybe there's something wrong with the batch. They write back, Nope, that shouldn't have happened. You know, send us a DM and we'll send you a code for new shoes. And I'm like, Whoa. Yeah. Cause at the same time, I was having issue with one of the Canadian banks with my credit cards getting shut down there. And, the only way they would resolve it for me is if I physically came into their branch, <laughs> right? And I'm like, guys, I'm in like remote Guatemala. Yeah, we're on Twitter. Yeah, you could easily authenticate me. Yeah, and let's get her done from here. Yet these shoe guys who are dealing in physical goods, yeah, are like, ah, oh, here's a code. Order shoes. They'll be at your house when you get back to Canada. Yeah, like the world, the world was upside down <laughs> for a moment there. I thought, you know. So anyway, you know, even look at like I have a, a like a life proof case on here and they've got a, you know, um, you know, a good, you know, return policy, mm-hmm. you know, same thing. They don't they don't ask you for much. And so I think there's those surprise and delight moments still exist, you know, through social media and brands shouldn't totally forget about the organic. Yeah. And I heard a good quote recently. Paid is really there to reach the people you can't reach through organic. Hmm. That's, that's a profound comment. Fair enough. Yeah. You know, and that's and it's true, right? Like organic, you're reaching your community, yeah. your supporters, those people you want to amplify. Yeah. Paid is reaching those people that haven't found you yet. Yeah. And you bring them into the fold. Yeah. And so I think you need the two, but right now I'm seeing an over-indexing towards paid. Towards paid. And people. There's are f- a fear that it's too whether it's Facebook, clamping down on branded posts, right? You know, on, on the Pepsi, Cokes, and yep. you know, corporate posts showing up in newsfeed. And the only time you'll really see a corporate post is if it's a paid post, mm-hmm. generally, right? Um, and then, you know, Twitter's too busy or there's too much political back and forth there to mm-hmm. really stand out. So I can see the reasoning behind yeah. behind paid. Um, but but you look the other day, like Burger King and Budweiser did a joint launch of their Budweiser burger. And if you, you know, if you're my age, you remember the old was yeah commercials and, you know, and they were tweeting that back and forth at each other and it made for an amazing conversation. Yeah. Uh, and that's brand awareness. Yeah. That's, that was way more effective to learn about a Budweiser Burger King burger than, than would be, uh, you know, than a paid, some, yeah. you know, a billboard or. Sure. Interesting. So tell tell me about your new role now at ICUC. Yeah. So ICUC has been around 14 years yeah. now and it was founded by a guy named Keith Billows out of Winnipeg, Manitoba. And we, run a lot of social media for some of the large brands out there. We help with social strategy, reputation management, uh, you know, helping with like Yelp listings, et cetera. So we do a broad range of things. I lead the client services team. So I'm responsible for a couple hundred people around the globe who, um, you know, manage accounts. So, you know, we're kind of a traditional agency. We like to refer to ourselves 
so we have our own software as well as provide a service. So, yeah. you know, you always hear software as a service. Yeah. We like to say we're software and a service. service. So we provide a software that'll like, you know, look for brand reputation for you, clean up, you know, your feeds, your mentions, find engagement moments. That kind of does 95% of it. And then we have the humans to do that last 5%. Yeah. And it's a nice combo because we know that no tool is going to be perfect. It's not going to get all the sentiment right. It's not going to find every negative or positive mention of your brand. So, mm. you know, we had a person the other day for a large hotel chain, you know, she was doing the listening and noticed that, uh, you know, a police officer who was there for a police officer convention tweeted about reading a sad book about a police dog. And, oh. uh, and she was, uh, she was crying, you know, she said, Oh, this book's making me cry. You know, yeah. as I sit in my ex hotel room and our person picked up on it, phoned the hotel and yeah. said, you know, here's a tweet. You should act on it. And the hotel, within minutes, ran a box of Kleenex up to her room. And this person tweeted about it. I said, look at the amazing service I got. These guys are listening, you know, and all that. And, yeah. you know, so that's the kind of things we do for brands. And it's, you know, it's a, I like this is a bit of a lost art. Like, we, you know, I miss, mm. I miss those moments. Like, the first time I ever sent a CFL fax figures and record book to, you know, to a guy uh, named uh, Kent up in uh, rural Alberta, right? Like, because he couldn't get it in his bookstore. And, I said, I'll trust you to mail me some cash down the road for it. And, you know, yeah, I mean, yeah. There's something to be said for those for those sort of yeah. sorts of things. I remember uh, Sindon uh, telling me a story of, um, you know, following a fan, and the fan was just by that that action of, you know, at Maple Leafs following mm -hmm. his account. It was like, man, I've been following. This has been my favorite team for so many years. I've been following them for so many years, and finally they're following me. And, and there was sort of that delight there. Mm -hmm. um, it's like a badge of honor. You're like, oh, the Leafs follow me. Sure. But then, you know, remember what they did after Sinden left? They did a mass unfollow of everybody. They did. The Leafs did a mass unfollow of everybody. Yeah. And then ended up following a couple hundred people, I think, like media and players. Yeah. And people got upset. They were upset that mm -hmm. they got unfollowed by their team. Mm-hmm. You know, and I, I don't know what the reason was for it, but... Uh, you know, I, I I got unfollowed by them, but I'm not I'm not a Leaf <laughs> fan, so it's it's all right. But uh, the Raptors still follow me. Yeah, and the Raptors didn't do the same thing the Leafs did. Interesting. Yeah. So the new guy at Leafs. I don't know. Like I'm knows? sure they had a reason for it, but yeah, uh, yeah. you know, but it hurt. It stung. People were upset. Yeah. You know, they're like, "What do you mean? I'm part of your team. I'm I'm part of your community." Yeah. I mean, I got followed by Barack Obama. There you and go. I think Jose Bautista's like, "What?" You know, yeah, it's a big deal. Yeah, it's a, it's a big deal. So um, you're gonna be president then. No. <laughs> Politics is out for too many too many skeletons, too many things I've tweeted. I've said on Facebook, people have screenshotted stuff and, 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 and are archiving it just in case, you know, Creed makes a run for school trustee or something like that. There you go. Remember that time you said this? Come on. Oh, they'll be combing through your podcast and editing words together into an yeah, attack video. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, for sure. Um thanks for coming in. Jamie, um, let me let me ask you this this last thing. You know, in 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 Vancouver, in BC, um, you know, one of the things you talked about uh, leaving Toronto was you know there was this sort of um, you know pick sides of of whatever debate, whether it's a transit debate or a political debate or whatever. Um, how is it in in Vancouver? <laughs> well, it's interesting because we're about to go through a civic election in the fall, as are you. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the party in power has been there a long time, not dissimilar to the Ontario Liberals. Mm. And although 
the party that's been in power, most of them aren't going to run again. They've realized the writing's on the wall. They're stepping away. Wow. So we're about to have this massive void. Well, we already have it where all sorts of new political parties are spr- sprouting up because we have parties in our municipal oh, elections. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Okay, okay, okay. So there are all these parties are showing up and, and it's going to be interesting. But the issue in Vancouver is like, affordability and housing mm. so the, it's a housing crisis you know people can't afford to live there and there's a lot of empty homes and everyone really and everyone's arguing over whose fault that is yeah. you know a lot of people are using our housing market to invest in not to live in yeah and you know and the people the salaries aren't like they are in toronto although even toronto salaries wouldn't cut it there but vancouver salaries are lower with a higher cost of living and it's it's really become a problem for the region. So that is a massive issue and affordability. Affordability yeah. is is a big problem and they and they risk losing. You know, I'm 40 years old. I got three kids, 7, 6 and 2 and a half. There's not a lot of people like that in Vancouver because it became so unaffordable that, you know, you've lost a lot, of, you know, you lose that, I'll call it, you know, as Richard Florida describes the creative class, right? Mm-hmm. You lose those people that you need to build a city. You lose those people that you need to develop the next generation. And, you know, I worry for Vancouver. It's such an amazing place. But mm-hmm. if you don't have those type of people there, you know, the professionals, the artists, the, you know, the restaurateurs, like, the, like you know, you're in trouble. Yeah. Um, everybody's against the pipeline? No, no. It's, it's, it's interesting. The pipeline, that's another tough one because it brings jobs. So you've got mm-hmm. the jobs people versus the environmental people. Yeah. You know, and one of, one of the things is, you know, the oil is going to flow somewhere until we figure out how to, you know, incentivize people to live green, right? Yeah. So, you know, I think I told you off air, I bought an electric scooter now yeah. to get around town, which to me, I think, you know, like it's gas is a buck 60 in Vancouver. It's, a, it's out Jeez. of control. I know. I thought it was out of control here. No, it's a hundred bucks to fill up your car now. It's crazy. Jeez. So, you know, that's you know that's moved someone like me. I'm like okay, well, I'll buy an electric scooter. It yeah. sounds like a better idea, you know, for short little trips and stuff like that. Obviously, not carrying three kids around. No, but, uh, you know that's a challenge. But uh, you know, so there's people that you know are getting crunching in affordability. They're saying, build the damn pipeline. I don't want to pay a buck sixty for gas. I can't even afford to drive to work anymore. Yeah, you know. So there's there's two sides to every debate but at the same time as someone who spends all his time in nature the last thing i want is oil spilled all over this beautiful land yeah so it's it's really interesting and you know and then you know one of my friends who's first nations running for vancouver city council and you know some of the first nations communities stand to benefit off a pipeline you know and bring themselves out of poverty Mm -hmm. and then on the flip side others are like don't you know we rely on fishing don't you know so it's 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 a polarizing issue it's and it's not all the indigenous are against or for there. No, there's a split everywhere. There's a split. And that's the misconception Yeah, is that, Oh, well, you know, indigenous are against the pipeline. Yeah. No, they're, they're, they're no different than the rest of society. Like some people, it, it we all look at it from our own point of view. Right. Yeah. So if you live in any of those Northern BC towns and you used to work for the local mill or the aluminum plant, that's now out of business. Well, you know, this represents a job for you and a way to continue to live. Yeah. You know, if you know, you, want to kayak every weekend like i do and yeah you know camp and don't want to have to live in an oil slick off your coast then yeah. you know you don't want it so i'm you know i wish we could find a there's way no easy answer there's no e- there's no these. easy answer because because i i want the price of gas i want the affordability to go down i sure. want people to have jobs yeah and i want to live in a beautiful country yeah 
you know, so do I want my cake and do I want to eat it too? Hell yeah. Sure. Why not? So why not? someone smarter than me, hopefully will figure that yeah. one out. So last question I have for you. You recently shared a photo of an Ontario sunset. <laughs> um, what are, uh, which is the more, more beautiful sunset, Ontario or BC? <laughs> you really put me on the spot here. Um, can I say they're different? Ocean versus lake. <laughs> Pine trees versus Douglas fir trees. <laughs> Snow-capped mountains versus uh, versus plains. <laughs> a sunset's a sunset, and we're all just blessed to be able to uh, enjoy every single night that we have in Canada, being able to look at the best sunset in the world in Canada. That's the perfect answer. We <laughs> live in a great country. We're lucky. <laughs> we are so lucky. Thanks for coming in, buddy. Great to see you, Kareem. Thank let's, you. Let's grab some food. How was that? That was amazing. Yeah, that was okay. a lot of fun. That was a lot of fun. <laughs>